Yeah, I did. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 7. And let me just say, it is hard, it is very hard for a preacher who loves the sovereign grace of God to get this close to verses 8 and 9 in Ephesians chapter 2 and not go there. We will eventually go there. But verses 1 through 7 belong to another one of those characteristic long sentences of the Apostle Paul in this letter. And so there's plenty to say about verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Before and after pictures are often used in commercials in order to show just how wonderful some product can affect you and sell it to consumers. We we like to see those kind of things in, you know, home renovation shows where there's some house that has been completely remodeled and you get these side-by-side pictures of, well, here's what the original mess looked like and here's the shiny finished product. Or if it's a before and after picture of some person like you know in a commercial for acne cream or a diet pill you know the the before picture invariably shows them sort of slumped over and downtrodden right and the after picture there's always it's it's always got better lighting but also they're standing straight and smiling verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians 2 the Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers of their own before and after pictures. We'll see in verse 4 that Paul describes the grace of God entering into their life. And that makes the, the first three verses the before picture. And it's not a pretty picture. He says, you were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned. Verses 5 through 7 is the after picture. You're brought to life. You're set free. You're eternally blessed. And between those is verse 4. It's like a, a transition explaining that only God's mercy and love makes the difference. You can't have a more dramatic transformation described than what we see here. We were dead in sin, but now we're alive in Jesus. We were enslaved to sin, but now we're set free in Jesus. We were condemned in sin, but now we're saved eternally and united with Jesus. Our text begins with the 
before picture. And the before picture is, is bad news, but it's important news. Even though it's not necessarily news that we would want to hear, you can't embrace the good news of salvation until you accept the bad news about sin. That sort of, that conviction of sin always has to precede the experience of salvation. So Paul begins by reminding them of the sad condition that they were in before they trusted in Christ for salvation. It's important to see this picture because to know God better, you have to know something of yourself as well. You have absolutely no hope of getting right with God without faith in Jesus. And so as Paul presents this before picture, he focuses on three main points in our lives. We were dead without Jesus, we were enslaved without Jesus, and we were condemned without Jesus. So let's start with this, you're dead without Jesus. In verse 1, you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The word quickened means to make alive or to be made alive. Just like if you remember the passage that says that God is the judge of the quick and the dead. It's saying he's the judge of the living and the dead. And so to be quickened is to be made alive. Now for what it's worth, I want to point out to you in this big sentence by the Apostle Paul, the translators did something interesting. In your King James Version, when you look at verse 1, you hath he quickened, is in italics, meaning that it's not actually there. It's been added by the translators. But they didn't just add it from nowhere. What they did, because this is such a massive thought, is down in verse 5, you see that phrase down there, he has quickened us together. And the translators have taken that phrase and sort of brought it up into verse 1 for clarification. So technically, as Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, what he says is he just begins this chapter with the words, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He wasn't interested here in in sort of soft selling this. He's not trying to spoon feed an easy message. He doesn't even hint around that there is a beautiful after picture yet. He's just being blunt about how bad things were. Human nature is generally viewed in a few different ways. Some think that humanity is all well and, and good. Some say it's not just good, it's all of us are getting better. A second view is that humanity, well, it is sick. It has diseases that affect it and may kill it. But on the inside, well, there is a little bit of good in everybody. We might get treatment. We can get recovered and restored. That's the most common view. But there's another view of the human condition, and it's what we find in Scripture, in this text in particular. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Mankind's problem is not that we've sort of failed to trap in, to tap into our truest potential. It's not that we have, you know, well, you're just cursed with low self-esteem. Frankly, your esteem of yourself could not be low enough. Our problem is that we are out of sync with our creator. 
It's not that, well, we need to get in touch with ourselves and our nature and our environment. Our true problem isn't that we're somehow just in need to be a little bit spiritually enlightened. Our problem is we're dead. Mankind is made up of living, breathing, walking, talking, dead people, according to the Apostle Paul. You want to talk about the before picture? The before picture of me is a dead body in a coffin. That's what the before picture is. And I know we bristle at the very idea of that because every spiritually dead sinner is still walking and talking and feeling and their thought is, well, I'm not really as bad as that. I know that there are people worse than me. This must be a description of those really bad people. But the words of the text simply don't allow for that. Even the believers in Ephesus, those who were at that moment living for Christ, their before picture was that they were spiritually dead. And so for everyone who hears that and says, well, that doesn't make sense, I don't feel dead, think about that. It only proves the point. Do dead people feel dead? In Ephesians 4, when we get there, we'll look at verses 18 and 19. Paul's going to go on to explain sort of the characteristics of this deadness as being, being alienated from the life of God. That is, we are excluded. We are removed from the true source of life. And further, he says, we are past feeling. We've become calloused to the things of life and of God. Past feeling is a great description for what it means to be dead in sin. If we had a dead body up here this morning, we could dress it up in church clothes and prop it up in a pew, maybe even hand it a songbook. It would look a lot like some people out there in pews. It wouldn't change the reality that it was lifeless. You could speak to that body and it wouldn't hear it. You could show light to it and it wouldn't see it. You could elbow it and give it a nudge. It's not going to feel it. And when it comes to the truth of God's word, the righteousness of life in him, we are as insensitive to the righteousness of God as a dead body is to any of our natural senses. We are dead without Jesus, Paul says. He also says, you're enslaved without Jesus. Look at verse 2. Wherein, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. Conversation there means manner of life. We all had our manner of life in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. When Paul here talks about having our, our, our walk with them, we walked according to the course of this world. The walk here, he is not describing a leisurely, leisurely stroll or some peaceful promenade through the beautiful fairgrounds of life. Walk here is describing a person's manner of life, their conversation, the way they live, the way you go about interacting in this living death that you're part of. 
In John 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin enslaves. And if you don't believe that, Paul here describes three ways that we were enslaved to sin. First off, you were enslaved to the world around you. He says you walked according to the course of this world. You lived in worldliness, subject to a system of values that are separated from the righteousness of God. We live in this sort of group think that makes it difficult to break free from. A brief look of, at you know, history and, uh, of slavery and oppression would tell you society can convince folks that some truly appalling things are respectable. And a look at our present world shows that we are in unrighteous confusion. We're, we're trapped by it. Sexual immorality is, is, of all kinds is rampant. Unborn infants are considered just worthless tissue. Greed is celebrated. Slander is excused. Mankind is enslaved to the world's ever-degrading value system. So first, you're enslaved to the world, but second, he says, you're enslaved to Satan's work. Because not only do we walk according to this world, Paul adds, it's according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the children of disobedience. We've seen through the book of Acts recently the the. Uh, reality of spiritual warfare against God's righteousness. Later in this letter, Paul's going to say in chapter six that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and, and rulers of this darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That is a description that saved people are in a battle against evil. But listen, unsaved people are part of that battle as well. Paul says here, our walk, our manner of life is in accordance. It's in agreement with Satan. It is working his will. We, we're obeying his marching orders. Since the fall of mankind, humanity has been enlisted in, in Satan's forces, have been in that battle. We have willingly been serving his cause. So not only are we enslaved to this world and we're enslaved to Satan. The third way we're enslaved, Paul says, lost sinners are enslaved to themselves, which seems like a strange thing to say. How could you be enslaved to yourself? Well, in verse three, he says, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You Catch those words there. There's your flesh. There's your desires. There's your mind working out those things that you want to do in your body. Without Jesus, we are just as enslaved to ourselves as we are to anything else. We are bound to our sinful desires. He's talking about the desires and passions and longings that pervert God's good will for us. Passions for money and sex and drugs and food and alcohol and and pride and anything else that keeps pleasure in its wrong place. If the world released you 
from slavery and let you out into society, if Satan discharged you from enlistment to his cause, it still wouldn't change anything because Paul doesn't deny the reality that we are enslaved to the world and enslaved to Satan, but he denies that it is forced slavery. We are doing it by choice. Your manner of life wasn't just fulfilling everyone else's desires, it was fulfilling your own desires. It's your flesh and your mind. In other words, despite the reality that there are in fact these outside forces at work in the life of a a lost sinner, they do not live in sin. You did not live in sin because someone else made you do it. You're wallowing in that living death because it's what makes you feel good and it is exactly what you want for yourself. You are fulfilling the desires of your own flesh and mind. And so let me ask, what, what, do, what would we deserve for that? When we're honest enough to remove those silly excuses of, well, the devil made me do it, or it's, everybody else is doing it, and there's so much peer pressure. When we just get down to the, I am enslaved to sin because that's what I want, What do you deserve for this living death of rejecting God's righteousness and rebelling against his goodness? Well, the answer is you deserve to be condemned to his wrath. And that's exactly what you've got. If you followed Paul's before picture here, you're dead without Jesus. You are enslaved without Jesus. And now he says you're condemned without Jesus. Look at the end of verse 3. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul takes that everybody's doing it excuse and just says, okay, let's apply that to the consequences then. Everyone is dead in sin and enslaved to sin, and that means everyone is condemned by God's wrath against sin. You are a child of wrath, even as others, or as we would say it today, just like everyone else. Mankind is universally condemned. That's our our default position before God. We're not waiting to be condemned. We're condemned already. And by the way, that's the words of Jesus himself as he described in John 3. Everyone who has not believed in him is condemned already. Those who are not children of God through faith in Jesus Christ are children of wrath. Sinners are dead in sin, separated from the love of God, unable to be right with God. And yet there is some description of the nature of our relationship with God. It's not a good relationship. We are under wrath. There are those who who deny that wrath is really from God. And there's some who claim, well, okay, so the Old Testament presents a God of wrath, but the New Testament only presents a God of love. But listen, wrath is an attribute of God. It is essential to the nature and character of God. Divine wrath is not like human wrath. Right? God doesn't get angry arbitrarily. He doesn't have a, a bad temper. He's not like the incredible Hulk, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. 
God's wrath is his righteousness reacting to our unrighteousness. God's wrath is at work in the world today. And there is coming a day of reckoning when the wrath of God will punish sin. That is the destiny of life without Jesus. We are sinful children of wrath by nature, by birth, by our own desires, by our choice, by our behavior. Thankfully, as the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus, that is only the before picture. There is also an after picture. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you were saved, and has raised us up together and has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. After all of that mess in verses 1 through 3, I don't know if there's any more beautiful words in Scripture than those two little words at the beginning of verse 4, but God. When we had done nothing except rejected his goodness and violated his law, when we rebelled against his word and ignored his warnings and defied his authority and just embraced this living death because it is what satisfied us, willingly subjecting ourselves to being slaves to sin and to Satan and our own selfish desires and worldliness, voluntarily just got in line with everyone else in the waiting for God's wrath queue, God enters into the equation. All sinners are on a runaway train toward everlasting damnation for sin, but God has intervened in sending his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to picture it as a runaway train, when, when you're plummeting down that track fueled by the combined forces of your own flesh and the world around you and Satan himself, there is only one power that could intervene to rescue you. And that is the sovereign and holy power of God. If the before picture looked exceptionally bad, the after picture of those who have encountered God's grace is inexpressibly good. And only that grace-filled, love-fueled intervention of the sovereign God could make the difference. But look at his motive for intervening. Why is it that the holy, just, and all-powerful God, the one whose wrath is declared against sinners, why is it that he intervenes on their behalf? Well, verse 4 explains it, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith he loved us. If you listen there, you'll find two reasons why God has done what he's done. The first reason is that the mercy of God is rich. God is not merely a God of mercy. God is rich in mercy. 
Many times we talk about sin as a debt, something that we owe as a payment for the crimes we've committed against God. But listen here, any, there is not any kind of debt you could owe because of your sin that would come close to challenging the riches of God's mercy. He is rich in mercy. There is no limitation to his ability to be merciful to even the worst sinners if he has a mind to do it, and he does have a mind to do it. Think about what mercy is, though, for just a moment. We'll see why Paul describes God as rich in mercy. Mercy is the opposite of justice. What we deserve for what we've done is God's wrath. That would be justice. Justice is the act of delivering the appropriate punishment for the crime that's been committed. When we see criminals go before a judge, we expect the judge to hand out justice, the appropriate penalty for the crime. But if there ever comes a time where we're in front of the judge, what do we want? We want mercy. Mercy is that process by which justice is restrained. Ready to use our imagination for a moment if you want to personify these. Justice is the individual who carries the sword. He's the one who's going to bring the wrath of God against sinners. And mercy is that person who steps in front of him and says, wait, wait, not yet, just, just wait. That mercy is our only hope. Verses one through three make it clear. We have no hope in our dead, enslaved, condemned selves. But the perfect judge of the world is rich in mercy. Not only is the mercy of God rich, but he says that the love of God is great. It is for his great love with which he loved us. How? <laughs> If we understand verses one through three, how could we read the words he loved us and not just be overwhelmed by them? How can it be that God loved that? Well, it's because God's love is not about us. It's about him. God doesn't love sinners because they're lovable. God loves sinners because God is loving And loving us miserable, rotten sinners is the very expression of his nature. There's there's little wonder that Paul describes God's love as it is great love. It is beyond comprehension. The way that we love in this world is always conditionally, even when we say otherwise. We love others when we are loved by them, right? We attach ourselves two people with the expectation and in turn they'll do the same for us. It's this sort of mutual admiration. The love of God is different than this. I know that probably everyone in this room has experienced someone who insisted that they loved them unconditionally and then in the process of time they came to know us better and know more about us and changed their mind about us and decided they couldn't love us anymore. 
But God is omniscient. He knows everything. And when his word declares his love for an undeserving sinner like you, you can trust he is never going to, at some point in the future, find out something about you that he didn't know and decide that he's going to change his mind. I am thankful that the love of God is unconditional. His love is not and has never been and will never be restricted by my worthiness of his love. This is about his love, not our loveliness. The riches of God's mercy and the greatness of God's love is expressed in their entirety in the person of God's son, Jesus. He sent his only begotten son, his perfect, precious son to come and take our place to stand under that divine wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Jesus came and took our sin onto himself and God poured out his wrath on his son in our place. He did it instead of me. If you believe, he poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of pouring it out on you. Christ took our sin to the cross and endured the justice of God in our place. There is mercy for you and me because there was no mercy for Jesus. He took all of God's wrath and having endured the price of your sins and dying under the wrath of God, he was buried and three days later, he rose again from the grave. Now, Paul wants you to know if you are a believer in Jesus, that in this work of love and mercy, the Lord has forever identified himself with you. You are so united with Jesus through faith in him that the before and after picture of your life, that after picture of God's grace having intervened in your life, you're not alone in that picture. Jesus is with you and he is the best part of it. Listen to how Paul describes this idea of unity with Christ, starting in verse five. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ by grace you're saved. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are never alone. You are united with him together in all things. In fact, when you look at that experience of together with Christ that Paul describes, he says, you were dead in sins, but you've been made alive. In verse five, you were quickened, you were made alive together with Christ. That means you're not just a person who believes in the resurrection of Jesus. You are, if you can, believe, if you can accept this, you are a participant in the resurrection of Jesus. Because when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, the power that came with him ensured that you would be quickened to spiritual life and united together with him in that life. At the beginning of verse six, just as the Lord Jesus was taken up into glory, you're together with him. He has secured the ticket for your own trip to glory with him. At the end of verse six, just as the Lord Jesus is seated in heavenly places, you've got a place secured together with him in those places forever. 
The after picture of a believer encountering God's grace is a picture of you and Jesus. Made alive together, raised up together, seated together in heaven. The great change which God has wrought in sinners is just the beginning of the great things that he will do for sinners. Remember how he was rich in mercy up in verse 4? Well, look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Exceeding riches of his grace. That in the ages to come, Paul says, when this brief hiccup of time ends and we step into eternity, when, when history runs its course and forever starts, the time's coming when you will step out of this dead world and step into eternal life. In those ages to come, God will make known the immeasurable, the too big to picture, the exceeding riches of his grace. We will spend eternity as a display of the immeasurable riches of what he will give to those who deserve nothing. This before picture and after picture, it's, the, the difference is startling. You're dead, you're enslaved, you're condemned without Jesus. The only hope you have to escape the judgment of God and the justice of God's wrath is that God himself would intervene in your life. If you have not experienced that, my prayer is that this message from Ephesians 2 will be the means by which God intervenes in your life. That he will draw your life to him. That he would show you faith in Jesus. That you would become the object of his immeasurable grace and the riches of it through all eternity. The greatness of God's mercy, the immeasurable riches of his grace can be expressed towards you only to the extent that you are, in Paul's words, together with Christ. Would you rather be alone when verses 1 through 3 describes what that condition is? Abandon that life of death. Be set free from the slavery to this world and to Satan and to your own desires. Escape the condemnation of being subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. But what Paul wants the believers in Ephesus to know, and the believers here this morning to know, is to think about your own before and after picture. You were dead to sin. You were enslaved to sin. You were condemned in sin. But through faith in Christ, you are made alive, united with him forever, an eternal example of God's rich mercy and his exceedingly rich grace, his immeasurable love. Remember Remember the miraculous transformation that God has worked in your life and praise his glorious name for it every moment that you have breath.